Please turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 1. Continuing our study of Isaiah this morning, if you were uh, students, if you got in town late, you're just joining us, we began the study last week in Isaiah chapter 6, kind of jumped ahead. So if you want to get a little bit of the background of the book of Isaiah, go ahead and get online, uh, listen to that podcast, kind of give you some historical background. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, students, I want, to, I want to begin by actually asking you a, a question. Have you ever taken a, an exam and known the right answer? but intentionally put the wrong answer for a question? You were just, you know, you knew the right answer, but you just put the wrong answer down. Just kind of see what would happen. I I doubt it, and I hope not. Because when you take an exam, you want to do your best. You need every point you can possibly get, right? And you know that if you put a wrong answer down, there are negative consequences to the wrong answer, right? Simple, makes sense. So uh, let me pull that analogy into the spiritual realm. Why do we sin? Knowing that there's a negative consequence, why do we sin? Now, there are a lot of reasons why we deceive ourselves or are deceived, but one of the primary, I would propose, is that we don't immediately see the negative consequence for a sin. We sin and the consequence doesn't happen immediately. There's a delay. Sometimes it seems like a very long delay. Sometimes it seems as if there is no consequence whatsoever. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Because we don't sin and experience the consequence, we're prone to do more evil. That is what the people in Isaiah's day are experiencing. There's been evil in their land for generations. And there have been threats, but it doesn't seem like the calamity has ever come. And so their hearts have become more and more and more evil, more and more hardened against God. But there are serious consequences for sin. And in chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah begins the process of laying out God's indictment against the sons of Israel for their sin. This morning, I want to look at four reasons that Isaiah gives us why we should take sin very, very seriously. I want you to read with me beginning in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey knows its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who, who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. First reason that we should take sin seriously is because God's goodness renders sin absurd. It just doesn't make sense. See, Isaiah comes out with guns blazing in chapters 1 through 5. I mean, he is just nailing sin after sin after sin. And what he says, as you read, is that sin makes absolutely no sense. Doesn't even a donkey know its master? And an ox knows its manger? Are you dumber than a donkey, he says? This is how he begins his book. Okay, there's no warm introduction. There's no clever illustration. It's just, are you that stupid? 
Really? Even a donkey knows better. An ox knows better. And yet you have abandoned the Lord. You have abandoned your father, God, who loves you. It absolutely makes no sense. And so for point after point, illustration after illustration, Isaiah demonstrates to them that it is absurd to sin. Chapter 5, he wraps up this discussion, at least for the moment of the introduction, with an illustration. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5 with me. Verse 1. Isaiah writes a song and he sings a song for Israel about sin. I asked him to write me a song about sin this morning, but he refused. So here it is. This is Isaiah's song about sin. Let me sing now for my well-beloved. That is, Isaiah's writing a song. He's going to sing it about God, his well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones or sour grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce only sour grapes, worthless grapes? God says, what else could I have done for my vineyard? I dug all around it. I planted the best, choicest vines. I put up a wall so no one could attack and the animals couldn't come in and destroy the vineyard. I pulled the weeds. I watered. I did everything I could to have a rich and fertile vineyard. And what happened? It's absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. It makes, it makes no sense. What Isaiah is singing about and then what God comments upon is that God blessed the nation of Israel. From one man, he created a, a family and he caused this family to grow and to grow rich and to prosper. And he protected that family from themselves and their own sins by putting them down in Egypt. And in Egypt, they grew and grew and grew. They became a, a nation. Two million people. And then God rescued them out of slavery and oppression when they called out to to him. He provided for them in the wilderness where there was nothing to eat and nothing to drink. They never lacked. And then he actually gave them land. Rich and fertile land. He gave them cities that they did not build. Vineyards that they did not plant. And he blessed them financially, materially in the land. He gave them a covenant, that is an agreement. He married them. He said, you will be my people. You will be special to me among all the nations of the earth. And I will give you a calling. You will be priests to me. You will represent me. You will proclaim my greatness to the nations. You among all the people. You don't deserve this. You were small and insignificant. And yet I grabbed you. I took you. And I loved you. And what have you done? You have despised my love. It just makes No sense. Believers in Jesus Christ, God has blessed us. He rescued us from the penalty of our sins and gave us the confidence that we will have life with him forever. And now he has indwelt us with his spirit. His spirit living in us gives us power each day to choose to live righteously and holy and triumphantly. Even when we don't feel like it, it is there. The power is there of God's spirit. 
He's blessed us by allowing us to live in this land, to worship freely. No one hindered us from coming into this place, bringing God's word, singing as loudly as we want to sing. We live in a prosperous land. We have physical blessings, financial blessings, spiritual blessings. When we sin, it just doesn't make sense. We're forgetting the God who has blessed us. And Isaiah says we should take our sin more seriously because it's a rebellion against a God who has blessed us. Second, sin incites the anger of God. We should turn to Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9. Isaiah 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Wow. Now, Hebrew is a, a really uh, colorful language. Notice at the end of verse 13, talks about the burning anger of the Lord. The word for anger is literally nose. Not what you might have expected. It's, it's literally nose. The word for anger is nose or nostril. And notice in this translation here, it talks about the burning anger of the Lord. The idea behind the imagery is this. When you become angry, what happens to your head? It becomes red. And if you're really angry, that redness spreads up from your neck all across your head and eventually it goes all the way out to the tip of your nose, burning. God's nose is on fire. That's what it means for him to have burning anger. It is a term of extreme emotional response. God feels deeply angry when we sin. Wait a second, Brian, I thought God loved me. Doesn't God love me? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, God loves you. He loves you, though you don't deserve it. He absolutely loves you. But, But anger over sin and love are not mutually exclusive. Hey, they're not. Some of us can't feel them appropriately at the same time, but God can. God absolutely loves us and he absolutely hates it when we sin. And it absolutely frustrates him and angers him when we sin. That is God's emotional response to our sin. He's angry when we sin. I want you to think about the life of Jesus in particular. As an example of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ as a man had a perfect Personality. He had a perfect emotional constitution, so to speak. One day, Jesus walked into the temple. And when he walked into the temple, what did he see? He saw animals 
making noise and a mess everywhere, tables everywhere, and greedy people changing money and selling animals and stealing from the poor and restricting access to worship. And how did Jesus respond when he saw that? He was really angry. His nose got really red, okay? And he goes through and he just starts turning the tables over. Imagine, you know, the disciples are with him. And and according to the story, they don't help. I guess they're just standing there stunned. Jesus alone is marching through table after table, just going crazy. Boom, just throwing the tables. And he's just turning everything over. And money's going everywhere. And he's kicking animals out of there. And he's letting them loose. And the animals are scattering. And the money's going. And people are just going crazy. And the noise is getting louder and louder and louder. And Jesus walks out of there. And he didn't say... Sorry, guys, I kind of lost control. He didn't say that. He's sweating, he's dripping, and the disciples are probably thinking, wow, (laughs) hadn't seen that side of Jesus before. Jesus most likely was smiling. It's about time that people worshiped my father. (sighs) Anybody else hungry? Let's go. He responded in passionate anger, righteous anger, because the holiness of God in his worship had been violated. Apostle Paul tells us, be angry, but don't sin. There are times when anger is the appropriate response. Matter of fact, further on in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And for years and years, I thought that meant don't make God's spirit sad. Uh, And then I did a word study. And what I came to understand is actually that should be translated, don't anger. Don't make God's spirit mad. Christians, don't make him mad. And in the context, what makes him mad is when Christians are fighting with one another. God looks down and says, this is the body of Christ. It's supposed to reflect Christ. It's supposed to be love and unity. And you are pulling each other apart and destroying each other. And you know how God feels about that? He's mad. He's angry. He has been incited to anger because of our sin. When, when we first had children, you know, I was reading all kinds of books on raising children and disciplining children. And I came across book after book after book said, never discipline your child in anger. I thought, really? How, how do you do that exactly? You know, because when my kids disobey, I feel angry. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Like, you know, I, I, I promise I'm not this, I'm not writing any books on child raising. Uh, I'm not the expert. But what I have learned for myself is, That when my child or children rebel against me, it makes me angry. And that's the right response. Now, it's inappropriate for me to lose control of my emotions and act toward them in a way that is emotionally out of control or rationally out of control. But when they're rebelling, when they're destroying themselves and destroying the unity of our home, uh, it's only right to say, yeah, that, that really makes me angry. I'm angry because that's self-destructive and community destructive. You're tearing apart the home. And I remember in my home, when when I was growing up, there were certain things that could really, really, really uh, set my dad off. Primary one was if I spoke disrespectfully to my mother. Wow, man, that awoke the bear, right? (laughs) 
(laughs) There were some things where there could be great patience. But this was immediate. My uh, my dad's response was, he said, I'll give you to the count of three. Three. (laughs) You know, I hear these parents in the grocery store, one, two, three. That's Ecclesiastes, right? Because the justice is not immediate, the hearts grow harder and harder. One, two, three. Count to 100. Count to 75. Count to, count to a million. You know, you just, mm-mm. my dad, give you to the count of three. Three. Okay, that is how God feels. Now, fortunately for us, God is also exceedingly patient. Let me give you just one illustration. Psalm chapter 86. It says, but you, O Lord, are a God Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. You know what the phrase slow to anger is literally? Long of nose. Interesting, huh? It's getting red. It's really getting red. But it takes a long time because God is so patient with us. But Christians, make no mistake, when we sin, it angers the heart of God because he is holy, holy, holy. Third, God must judge all sin. So we should take sin very, very seriously. Turn back to chapter one again in verse two. Isaiah says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. The setting is uh, the courtroom. And if you read uh, chapters one through five in particular, but really the entire book of Isaiah, you're going to hear this uh, courtroom terminology over and over again. Isaiah is calling court into session. The courtroom is the throne room of God. And he says, listen up, we're calling court into session. And God is calling in witnesses. And who does he call in as a witness? Heaven and earth, because he's the creator of all. And he has created these particular creatures to live on the earth and to represent him. And his character, his nature, his values, but he has an accusation to level against them. So he calls court into session and he says, let me call in the witnesses. Listen, O heavens and earth. When uh, Moses was giving the law to the nation of Israel a second time, right before they're about to go into the promised land, God spoke and he said, hear, O heavens and earth. I'm going to set up the court. I'm calling in witnesses because I need to make an accusation. In this courtroom, God is actually fulfilling three functions. God is the offended party. God is the prosecutor. And God is the judge. God is the offended party. Because all sin ultimately is against him. Because he made all things. God is the prosecutor. He's the one who is uh, issuing the accusation or the indictment against his people. And really the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are mostly about indictment. <laughs> Man, it's tiring to read. Uh, this last week I was going through and looking at 
all of the different ways, just in chapters one through five, that God talks about sin, all of the different words for sin. And I thought I might spend a little bit of time on that this morning, but by the time I finished, I was exhausted. And I thought, you know, I'll just, just wear us all out because there are so many varieties of sin that he talks about in terms of their materialism and their concern with externals and their pride and their lack of concern for the poor. So we're just going to put those out and break for later and kind of break them up so we can take them in bite-sized pieces because it's just overwhelming the indictment that God issues against these people. But God is also the judge. He's the one who issues the verdict. And he says guilty. Heaven and earth, I call you to bear witness. You have seen all that has happened, all that has transpired within you. Am I not right in judging my people? Am I not right in judging them because their response when I indict them is hypocritical worship, not repentance. Turn to chapter 1, verse 11. When God indicts his people, what they do is they go and they offer more sacrifices. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. In other words, God is tired out as well. He's worn out because the proper response is not external, but it is a changed heart. And so God issues his verdict and the standard by which God judges is his righteousness. Look with me in chapter five, verse seven. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looks for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In Psalm chapter 97, verse 2, it says this. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In other words, in Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah looks up and he sees the throne room of God, and he can only get to the very hem of of the robe, what he is looking at is the righteousness of God. The word for righteousness is tzaddik in Hebrew. It is used over 81 times in the book of Isaiah. It is probably the most important theological word in the book of Isaiah. The original idea of righteousness was something that was straight. If it's righteous, it's straight. And what it came to mean was uh, according to a standard. Measuring up to a standard. Something is righteous if it is according to the standard. Whatever that standard is. And so it was applied in uh, the commercial realm. Things needed to be accurate and true. Book of Leviticus, it says, you shall have a just or a righteous balance. Your scales need to be righteous. Righteous weights. A righteous ephah, which is a measurement of volume. A righteous hen, another measurement of volume. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land 
of Egypt. And so all that you do, even when you're buying and selling, should be righteous, okay? According to a standard, an ounce is an ounce. Don't lie. It was also applied, obviously, in the courts of law. Moses speaking, he says, then I charged your judges at that time saying, here are the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously, judge according to the standard between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. And what is the standard? The standard is the spoken word of God. Judge according to the standard because all that God does is always according to the standard. And what is the standard? When we speak of the righteousness of God, what is the standard that God meets? Well, it is nothing less than God himself. God is the standard. God is the standard. He is holy, 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 completely set apart. Turn with me in Isaiah to chapter 45 and verse 21. Isaiah 45 and verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Okay, we're back in the court of law. God says, call in your own witnesses, and then I'm going to call in my witnesses. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. In other words, God says, I, I really can't call in other, any other witnesses other than me. So I'm going to swear by myself because I am the standard. I've sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. My word sets the standard. I am always loyal to my word. I will always keep my word. I will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Because I am righteous. I'm absolutely perfect in all of my ways. And so when we speak of God's righteousness, it's not a sliding scale. And that's where as humans, we really get tripped up. Well, I'm a little better than those folks over here, and I'm a lot better than these folks over here. But the standard for relationship with God is the righteousness of God. So when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, he said, in summary, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, which is horrible news, okay? Horrible, horrible news. You shall be perfect just as God is perfect. You shall be righteous just as God is righteous. You'll be holy just as God is holy. And you know what? You just can't. So give up and give in to Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that God gives us the righteousness of Christ. He was perfect He never sinned. He never failed. What God promised, Christ fulfilled. The standard of God's revealed word, Christ lived according to that. There was no failure, no sin in his life. God accepted his sacrifice on the cross, accepted it on our behalf so he can look at us and he can see the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. And we can be declared righteous. Righteousness of God means that someday God's going to come 
and send his son Jesus Christ, and he's going to put all things right. Okay? All sin, all failure, all that's been done wrong in the world, God will set right through Jesus Christ. And really, that's the bulk of what's talked about in the latter half of the book of Isaiah. God setting all things right through Jesus Christ. Now, fourth reason we should take sin very seriously is that sin always leads to disaster. Turn back chapter 5 and verse 5. God says, so now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled to the ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so what God did is he removed all protection from them. In other words, God says, I won't force myself upon you. But if you don't come under the umbrella of my protection, then you need to understand in a broken and fallen world, when you live according to the standard of the world and its brokenness, your life will eventually crumble. It's inevitable. It is going to happen. Principles laid out in chapter 3, verse 9. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous, it will go well with them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them. For what he deserves will be done to him. He says this is the inevitable principle that binds the universe together. It's a tapestry that God wove and The threads reflect the nature and character of God. And so it is inevitable in his universe that evil will be punished and righteousness will be blessed. It may not happen immediately, but it will happen inevitably. It must, it has to. Why? Because the universe reflects the nature and character of God. So if you notice chapter 3 verse 9, it says, they have brought evil on themselves. That word for evil isn't moral evil, it is disaster, calamity. They have brought the consequences upon themselves. This is Romans chapter 1. God gave them over. When they chose to run away from God, God said, Okay, I won't force myself on you. I will give you what you want. Sin always results in disaster. Let me read to you again from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Then he goes on, he says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does does not fear God. Solomon says it's just, it's going to happen. It's going to happen eventually. Sin leads to destruction, calamity, disaster. It just does. That is why owner's manuals are written for every combustion engine. Okay, because there's a right way to run them and a wrong way to run them. Owner's manuals, we should read them. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend and uh, he drove his car 
while it was leaking oil and he drove it and he drove it and he drove and it kept leaking oil and it kept leaking oil. And then one day, you know what happened to my friend's car? It stopped right in the middle of the road. It stopped and the engine froze up and it was ruined because all the oil had leaked out. And I saw him, I said, well, man, you know, didn't you see the, the lights coming on and the warning light for oil? And didn't you see that? And he said, yeah, you know, my dad asked me the same thing. <laughs> I said, well, what did you, you do? What were you thinking? He goes, well, I just thought it'd go away. Yeah, I was raised that every time you, you, before you start an engine, you check the oil. Yeah, I was just raised that way. A little self-righteous about that, you know? Always check the oil. So a couple of years ago, I, I borrowed my dad's rototiller. It wasn't working, so I took it to a repair shop, and the guy got it all tuned up, running great. I used it that season. Well, the next year, I pulled it out, and I thought, I checked the oil. So sure enough, I looked in. I checked the oil. It was a little bit low. I added some oil to it, cranked it up, and I'm chugging along. I'm using that rototiller. It's running awesome. I mean, just, yeah, this is great. Didn't even have to get it tuned up. And all of a sudden, it goes, Rung! and just stopped. What in the world is going on? So I, you know, I checked the oil again. You know, it's a little low. And then I realized that um, I had been looking in the the drain plug, and the the fill plug was up here. So in other words, the entire reservoir was empty, and I completely destroyed my dad's rototiller. And my self-righteousness evaporated very quickly. And it was embarrassing. And I honestly thought, I don't even think I want to tell that story because of how it reflects poorly on me. I'd rather tell just the story about my friend and reflect poorly on him. (laughs) But we all do it. We don't read the owner's manual. We ignore the owner's manual. We see a red light. Warning, warning, warning. Temptation, sin, disaster. Don't go there. And we ignore it. Sin always leads to disaster. Okay, ultimately that's called the wrath of God. God has to eventually punish sin. And the punishment for sin is, is separation from him because he is absolutely and perfectly holy. But again, the beauty of the gospel is that God poured out all of that anger against the sin of all people in all times on Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He himself is the propitiation, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation means satisfaction of wrath. Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath. He was hanging on the cross, and what was actually happening on the cross is God is pouring out all of his anger against sin into Jesus. The moment that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and satisfied God's wrath against your sins, when you believe that transaction is credited to your account and God can look on you and see the righteousness of Christ, the innocent sacrifice of Christ made on your behalf, removes your guilt and gives you God's righteousness. You are put into right relationship with God forever. 
forever, forever. Christ's work always stands full and complete for you forever. And all that you have to do is say, God, I believe. I believe. If you have never done that, let me encourage you. That's the most important decision that you could make today. But Christians, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we still sin, don't we? Do, don't we? Wonderful news of the gospel is that since Jesus has put us into the family of God, he is our father and he never lets us go. Even when we sin and fail. Makes him angry. But he still loves. Because that's how God is. But because of that great love for us and that incredible blessing that he has given to us in Christ, the normal response to that is, God, thank you. Pull back my eyes to see the foolishness, the ridiculousness of sin. It's absolutely absurd. It makes no sense. Father, empower me to stop frustrating you and angering you with my sin. And we won't be perfect in this life, but Christians, the church takes sin too lightly. Believers in Jesus Christ, secure in Jesus Christ. Let's not let that security cause us to take sin lightly, but take it even more seriously because of God's incredible love and loyalty and blessing in our lives. If you don't know how this semester to move forward in taking sin more seriously and seeing it crushed more and more and more in your life, please come talk to me. Talk to one of our staff members, an elder. Talk to a Sunday school teacher, home church leader. Say, you know, make a commitment. God, I, I want to take sin more seriously. I, I see that you are holy, holy, holy. Let me move forward in holiness and righteousness like you. Let's not stay where we are today. Okay? As a church, let's not stay where we are today. But let's see the fruit of righteousness produced more and more and more in our lives this year. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for loving us loyally and mercifully. We acknowledge we do not deserve the great blessings that you've given us, and yet we are thankful that you have. I pray, Father, that we would learn to see you as you are and to take our sin very seriously because you do. Because you are absolutely, perfectly righteous and holy. Father, I thank you for for giving us this rich book of Isaiah. I pray that it would illuminate our our eyes to, to really see you more and more as you are. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.